0: I don't know how to just, how you would expect someone to feel. I mean, if they told you tomorrow you're dying, how would you feel? It's not something... We all die, but it's knowing your exact date and time, that's hard to deal with.
1: That was the voice of Oscar Ray Bolin Jr. Hours before he was executed on January seventh, 2016. Bolin murdered three women in the Tampa area more than 30 years ago. That story along with the recent arrest of a Daytona Beach woman accused of killing and dismembering her estranged boyfriend, is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter with the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the slang of Jeffrey Albertsman, whose body was found inside his Daytona home in July. What made the discovery of the body so unusual was that it was missing its arms and legs. Those detached limbs would be found two months later in a fernery in Delion Springs. The suspect in the case, Nelsie Tetley, was arrested Thursday. Police said she is a person of interest in a cold case out of Ormond Beach. The victim in that case also was dismembered. Later, I'll discuss the tragic and often twisted story of Oscar Ray Bolin, who was found guilty of three Tampa area killings that went unsolved for years until someone called an anonymous tip line in 1990, fingering Bolan for those crimes. What made this case all the more notorious was that Bolin, while on death row, got married to a member of his defense team. My special guest for that segment will be Fox 13 Tampa Bay reporter Gloria Gomez, who was the last to interview Bolin, and former Tampa Tribune reporter Lisa Davis, who interviewed the mother of Bolin's third victim. But coming up, the story of a still unsolved infant homicide case out of Orange City
2: She's not responding, I don't know. She's she seems,
1: she seems eight, lifeless. Eight. Okay, I need you to listen. Orange City Police rushed to a home on Tappan Circle the night of November 17, 2017, after the mother of an infant frantically called 911, saying her baby wasn't moving or breathing. The baby was rushed to the hospital that night. Days later, she died from her injuries. An autopsy revealed she had suffered a skull fracture. No arrests have been made, and police have not named anyone as a suspect. Detectives said the child's mother, 33-year-old Tangela Pitts, had gone out for a while to buy some food and left her daughter under the supervision of her boyfriend. After Pitts came home, her boyfriend, Benito Rodriguez Pagan, left the house to run an errand. That was when Pitts noticed her child wasn't breathing.
2: Come on, baby. Are you breathing?
3: Come on, mama.
1: Okay. Is she, mama. Can you put your ear and cheek close to her nose and mouth and see if you can feel or, or hear breathing going on?
2: It doesn't seem. She's been sick. <laughs> I don't know.
1: How old is the baby?
2: Six months. She's six months old.
1: And she's not crying, breathing, or making any noises Whoa, or anything like that?
2: No, not. Please, get somebody here.
1: During the 911 call, the operator urged the mother to perform CPR on her daughter and talked her through it. The baby had no vital signs when paramedics arrived, but police said eventually she started breathing again. At the end of the call, you can hear Pitts saying she had left the girl alone only for a short time while she went to McDonald's. She started panicking as her daughter was being led to the ambulance.
2: I don't understand. I know she wasn't feeling good, but i have been keeping an eye on her, and I just went to McDonald's, just one guy,
1: McDonald's. Oh, go, Mom. <laughs> an Orange City police spokesman said the case has been an uphill battle for investigators. The baby lived for several days in the hospital so that meant the medical examiner was unable to pinpoint a time of injury. Additionally, police said one of the people being investigated in the case was involved in another incident in another jurisdiction, which has further complicated things. They wouldn't provide specifics on that. A police report stated there were other obvious indications of child neglect. The Florida Department of Children and Families also is investigating. An agency spokeswoman said the agents would be coordinating with law enforcement. Coming up, the shocking story of a Daytona Beach woman accused of fatally shooting her estranged boyfriend and cutting off his limbs. Daytona Beach police arrested a woman Thursday on allegations she fatally shot her former boyfriend inside his home in July and detached his arms and legs. That suspect, Nelsie Tetley, who also goes by the name Sarah, happens to be a person of interest in a 2007 homicide in neighboring Ormond Beach. The victim in that case also had been dating Tetley, and he too was found dismembered. On Friday, with regards to the July homicide, Daytona Beach Police Chief Craig Capri gave a news conference and provided more information about what had led detectives to pin the killing on Tetley. The victim was 55-year-old Jeffrey Albertsman. Capri described what police rolled up to after they got the call from a family member that Albertsman had not been heard from for quite some time. At the time, we found a, uh, a decomposed body, which was in there for probably about two weeks prior to us getting there. The body had a single gunshot wound to the head, and the body uh, was missing its arms and legs, which was kind of uh, suspicious. Albertsman also had been shot once in the chest. The crime scene at 1222 North Street was a gory mess. Capri told me after the media conference that the suspect was demented. Court records have indicated that the couple had a volatile history. On April 23, 2013, Albertsman drove himself to the hospital with a stab wound to his stomach. He told police he had been staying in a hotel for about a week because he was trying to leave Tetley who was 12 years older than him. She wound up following him around town in her car and called him constantly on his cell phone. Albertsman eventually gave in and decided to go home and confront Tetley. That's when she pepper sprayed him and stabbed him. Albertsman wound up driving himself to the hospital, even though his eyes were irritated by the pepper spray. Tetley was charged with aggravated battery in that case, pleaded no contest, and received community service and two years probation. In October 2016, Albertsman filed an injunction against Tetley and accused her of striking him and threatening to kill him. She wound up charged with misdemeanor battery in that case. She spent 12 days in jail and received 11 months probation. She was ordered to have no contact with Albertsman. Eight months after she was sentenced, Albertsman was dead. Police were two months into the murder investigation when they got an unexpected call. Also on September 20th, we uh, responded out to a fernery out in West Volusia where we found some body parts were found which were confirmed to be of our victim. Those human remains were found more than 20 miles from the crime scene in Dillion Springs. Albertsman and Tetley had split up when Albertsman was killed. She no longer lived with him. Detectives found blood evidence inside one of the sinks inside Albertsman's home and the DNA was linked to Tetley. She also was found in possession of two house keys that unlocked Albertsman's front door. There were no signs of forced entry at the crime scene. When police asked Tetley whether she had keys to Albertsman's place, she told them she didn't. According to Capri, it was one of several lies she told investigators. It was revealed Friday that Tetley was a person of interest in the December 2007 slaying of Michael Scott Lewis, who was 27 at the time of his death. Tetley, who had dated Lewis, was 57 at the time of Lewis' death. Some of the victim's remains were found by a fisherman in the Tomoka River in Ormond Beach. Initially, a leg and foot were found, but police responded and found other body parts in proximity. Lewis's head was never found. A spokesman with the Ormond Beach Police would not comment on the Lewis case, nor would he confirm that Tedley was a suspect. Tedley remains behind bars without bail. Capri said it was critical to build a solid case against Tedley and added that it was satisfying to finally put her in jail. We're quite
2: confident we have this killer off the streets, and we were able to get closure for the family
1: uh, who was grieving over their loss, and that's, that's the big thing, getting justice for the family and justice for our victims. You can bet that won't be the last you'll hear of that story. Coming up, the deranged tale of Tampa area serial killer, Oscar Ray Bolin.
0: I was like, they killed me 28 years ago when they locked me up. Now they're just releasing me.
1: Oscar Ray Bolan was executed at 10.16 p.m. on January 7th, 2016. He was sentenced to die for the murder of 26-year-old Terry Lynn Matthews, who was slain in 1986 in Lando Lakes, a community in south-central Pasco County, north of Tampa. Matthews was Boland's third known murder victim in Florida. His previous victims were 25-year-old Blanche Holly and 17-year-old Stephanie Collins. All three females were bludgeoned and attacked with a blade. For various reasons, all of Bolin's original verdicts and death sentences were thrown out. In all, he was tried ten times for those three murders. But his final conviction and death sentence for Matthews stuck. In spite of those ten sets of jurors convicting Bolin, he boldly claimed his innocence to Fox 13 reporter Gloria Gomez, a journalist who has famously interviewed killers pre-trial and post-trial, While a reporter in Sacramento, she interviewed Scott Peterson less than a month after his wife went missing from their Modesto home. That interview changed the public's perception of Peterson, who subsequently was charged, convicted, and sentenced to death for killing his wife, who was eight months pregnant. Peterson seemed to lack self-awareness during his interview with Gomez, but Boland, by comparison, was very self-aware. Gomez told me that Bolin was firm and unflappable during his sit-down with her, which took place hours before his scheduled execution.
2: When I would ask him, is there anything you want to say? Is there any anything that you want to clear your mind of? Is there, you know, any any idea of, of remorse, any, any sense of regret? He didn't have any. And I was kind of shocked because I thought at that moment he would finally express some sort of remorse for what he did, for the, the pain that he caused all those families. But no, he never did. He, he proclaimed he was innocent and that he was uh, wrongly convicted and that they were basically going to put an innocent man to death. And he stuck by that the entire time. I was surprised that not once did he waver from that.
1: The three victims were killed in 1986, but they weren't his only victims, and Bolin wasn't charged with those killings until 1990, when an anonymous person called a crime tips line identifying Bolin as the killer. It was later learned that tipster was the new husband of Bolin's ex-wife, who was told about the 1986 killings. Bolin himself she even helped her ex-husband dispose of some of the evidence from one of the murders Bolin tormented that ex-wife while the two were dating in 1982 he abducted her drove her around for hours and withheld her diabetes medication he wound up being charged with false imprisonment but the charge was later dropped the couple married but they wound up divorced in 1989 Bolan was a carny He came from a family of carnival workers. They were spread across the Midwest and Southeast. He was an abused kid. According to the Tampa Bay Times, his mother walked him to a school bus on a leash because he ran away so much. He spent some time in Juvenile Hall in Ohio during his youth, and he moved to Florida in the early 1980s. By the time the anonymous call was made in 1990, Bolin was already confined to a prison cell back in Ohio. He had been convicted of kidnapping and raping a 20-year-old truck stop cashier near Toledo, and he was serving a sentence between 22 and 75 years. The victim in that case survived. She was interviewed for a story published by the Tampa Bay Times on the day of Bolin's execution. She told the Times that one night in November 1987, She stayed late at work because she was being trained for a new position. She had just been promoted. When she got into her vehicle to leave, she saw Bolin through her windshield. He was standing in front of her bumper. He motioned to her, but she shook her head at him and then locked her car door with her elbow. A sense of doom came over her. Bolin didn't take no for an answer. He pulled a gun on her. He told her. He needed her car and was wanted by the law. Then he told her to move over. He drove her to another area, ignoring her pleas to let her go. He took her to a desolate spot where a semi-trailer was parked. Two other men were inside. They were Bolin's accomplices. They rode around in that semi for hours, and Bolin sexually battered her at gunpoint. He held the gun to her head and pulled the trigger, but it didn't fire. She was actually dropped off along a highway in Pennsylvania. One of those men had a guilty conscience. He told police what Bolin did, and Bolin was arrested. That victim, who was now 50 years old, told The Times that when she found out her attacker was a serial killer in Florida, she wasn't the least bit surprised. She also told the Times that while Bolin was in jail awaiting trial, he told another inmate that he was looking to put a hit on her. Bolin and his accomplices had gone through her purse and found out where she lived. She wound up moving. Bolin was linked to another murder in Greenview, Texas. The victim in that case, Deborah Diane Stowe, was kidnapped, raped, and strangled in 1987. Authorities there did not prosecute because by the time they made the connection, Bolin had three first-degree murder charges hanging over his head in Florida. Detectives tried to link Bolin to various cold case murders that occurred in and around Tampa in the mid-1980s, but no connection could be made. Lisa Davis was a reporter for the Tampa Tribune during Boland's 10th and final trial. She sat through the testimony, heard the evidence, and researched the horrifying details of how Terry Matthews and the other victims were killed and discarded.
3: They were all girls who just somehow ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time with a real bad dude. You know they they were all beaten they were all taken from where they had been you know just dumped for someone else to be found
1: natalie blanche holly was boland's first known florida victim she was killed 32 years ago wednesday blanche was the daughter of charles holly a tampa republican who ran for florida governor in 1964. he lost his bid to democrat hayden burns Blanche was a night manager at Church's Chicken restaurant in Tampa. She was finishing a late shift the morning of January 25th, 1986, and she never made it home. Her body was found later that day in an orange grove in Lutz, located in Hillsborough County, about 15 miles north of Tampa. Authorities said she had been stabbed 10 times. According to a story in the Tampa Bay Times, a sheriff's deputy checked a couple of cars parked along Lake Magdalene Boulevard in Tampa. One of those cars was registered to Bolin, who told a deputy that he was having some car trouble and the lady accompanying him was helping him. The deputy asked the woman whether she was okay, and she replied that she was. It is believed that woman was Blanche. Bolin's first three convictions were overturned in the Holly murder case. He was convicted a fourth time, only it was for a lesser charge of second-degree murder. It was an outcome that offended Blanche's family. But Bolin was sentenced to life for that murder, and he wasn't quite able to wiggle out of all of his death sentences. Blanche's mother, Natalie, died in 2012, almost four years before Bolin was executed but she lived to sit through every one of his trials for all three victims. In fact, all three of the victim's mothers sat together at every trial. Through all those graphic details and during the aftermath of every gut-wrenching overturned verdict, those mothers gave each other the strength to carry on.
3: They had kind of made a vow during the early days of their daughter's death; that they would stand by one another, and um, they sure did all through the years and through this, this particular trial. They were known to sit with each other. I mean, I can imagine the emotional toll that just takes when you go to your own child, and then to have to keep reliving a similar experience with each of those cases, not only for one trial but it turned out in the end to be three. I just can't imagine what that did to them, but I guess it was enough to make sure they knew they weren't alone. And that was really remarkable.
1: Boland's second victim was 17-year-old Stephanie Collins. She disappeared November 5th, 1986. She was found a month later, the same day Terry Matthews was killed. Collins was stabbed and her skull was crushed. Stephanie was born in Kansas City and lived there until her family moved to Tampa when she was about ready to start high school. She was still a student at Chamberlain High School when she was killed. She had attended to go to college to study interior design. She worked part-time at Eckerd Drugs in Carrollwood. She went to her workplace the night of her disappearance to ask whether she could work more hours. Her body was found off a dirt road in Pasco County the same dirt road where Terry Matthews was found. Terry was killed December 5th, 1986.
3: Just like the other girls, they were all doing something they did um, as part of their routine day, and on this particular day, Terry had worked late at a banking job, had dinner with her boyfriend, um, who she was getting very, very involved with, and she... It happened to be driving home late after dinner and stopped at the Land O'Lakes post office to check mail for the family like she did any other week. And that's where she unfortunately encountered Bolin. And it wasn't until the next day her car was found there. The lights were still on, the motor was still running, and she vanished, they think, somewhere around 1.30 um, in the morning.
1: It was learned that Bolin had a mailbox at that Landa Lakes post office. The person who found Terry's car outside the post office building was her boyfriend, who went out looking for her after finding out she had not returned home. Terry's body was found near Stephanie's body, and it was wrapped in a sheet. Her throat had been cut, and her head showed signs of trauma. There was a witness in that case. Mullen's 13-year-old half-brother.
3: What I do know that what followed was he went back to the property where um, he stayed. His stepbrother was there. And um, after beating Terry, um, he brought his, his young teenage stepbrother, I believe he was 13 at the time, outside to show him um, there was this white cloth with a with a woman underneath, and I can imagine that ruined his brother's life. It, he ruined many people's lives, not just his victim. And I can't imagine what that would have done to a young child. Um, here's his big brother, someone in theory you look up to, and he just, he just killed a young woman very, very violently.
1: According to news reports, that younger brother heard whimpering coming from under the sheet. The teen told trial jurors that Bolin told him the woman had been shot during a drug deal outside the Land O'Lakes post office. Then he watched his older brother straddle the body and try to drown the woman with a garden hose. Then he beat her with a wooden club. At some point, he slit her throat. Bolin received a death sentence in July 1991 for Blanche's murder months later he got his second death sentence for Stephanie's murder a year later he got a third death sentence for Terry slang the rape victim in Ohio testified in the penalty phases of the trials in Hillsborough and Pasco at the time everything seemed locked up Bolin was gonna die for his crimes but all of the convictions and death sentences were overturned by 1995 Bolin's ex-wife, who was now deceased, testified in those trials. That meant a little-known spousal privilege law was violated because Bolin had never waived it. In 1996, Bolin was retried for Terry's killing. The brother almost didn't take the stand the second time. He recanted his original testimony. He changed his mind again when it came time for the trial. While he was on the stand, a woman who was seated in the courtroom kept shaking her head. The trial judge booted her out of the courtroom. That was the woman, according to the witness, who pressured him to contradict his original testimony. She had gained national notoriety. That woman was the former Rosalie Martinez, who by then was known as Rosalie Bolin. She was a mitigation specialist working on Bolin's case. That person's role in a defense team is to provide supportive research on the defendant's history. If a first-degree murder defendant is convicted, during the penalty phase, the defense is allowed to present mitigating evidence to offset the aggravators put forth by the prosecution. That evidence is rounded up by the mitigation specialist. Rosalie Martinez fell in love with Bolin. The two got married, although they were never known to have a conjugal visit. Their wedding generated a lot of news. It was the subject of a 2020 episode, and it added a unique twist to an already twisted case. Her presence in the courtroom infuriated the mothers of the victims. Um, it's not
3: something you normally encounter in the courtroom or in in cases of anything like this. So it was very different. But um, Rosalie is very different as far as I could tell. When she walked in the courtroom, you knew she was there. People wondered who that woman was. But the three moms knew very well who she was and they didn't want anything to do with her. And she was just a symbol of anger. How can a mother do this? When he took somebody else's life, when he took somebody else's daughter's life, it didn't make sense to them. Um, and it got to the point where I don't think any of them would speak his his name or her name. she They just suspected that she just wanted some sort of media circus surrounding her, which I think she got for a time. but she was she was there up until he was sentenced sentenced to death from what I understand.
1: In spite of the assistance Rosalie Bolin provided to the defense team, they never got an acquittal. Three more sets of juries convicted and recommended death for Bolin. Those verdicts, however, also got overturned. Gomez, who didn't start working at Fox 13 until after the trials, told me she found it very unusual that Bolin's convictions never seemed to stick.
2: There were so many issues with each trial. And there were so many, you know, times where he was retried and retried and retried, you start to wonder, was there problems in this investigation? Was there and and just just a slight bit of doubt is enough to give you pause and say, Okay, maybe this is a situation where we take a step back and, and look at all the evidence again and make sure you know, this is the right thing because death is so final.
1: As I mentioned, Bolin was finally convicted of second-degree murder for killing Blanche Holly. He got a third conviction and death sentence for Stephanie's slang. But that sentence, amazingly, was again overturned on appeal. But in 2001, the conviction and death sentence for the murder of Terry Matthews Survived the appeals process, and one was all it took. The three moms finally got justice. Two of them were alive to witness Bolin's execution. Davis told me that Bolin's demeanor was unusual for a murder defendant, particularly one with a death sentence hanging over his head. Then again, it was already his 10th rodeo. He didn't
3: look like your typical defendant. He often had a smirk on his face or would, you know, take a look back um, in the courtroom. But he seemed pretty, I don't know if I want to say confident, but he, he definitely, he definitely sat there like he was having coffee most of the time rather than being tried for murder.
1: His demeanor with Gomez wasn't much different, and by that time, only a last-minute appeal by the U.S. Supreme Court could save him. Death was hours away, and yet he was very composed. There was no shaking, no signs of anxiety. He was ready to take his last breath.
2: Very much so. I just expected him to, you know, be unnerved by the whole thing, and he wasn't. He seemed to be very calm, very eloquent in in explaining his innocence. It's almost like he wanted to clear his name before he was put to death. And the the fact that he was being put to death was almost a release for him. Like his mind can now be at rest, at peace, and and no longer trying to uh, proclaim his innocence. And he was fine with it. And...
1: During his interview with Gomez, Bolin didn't deny raping the woman in Ohio. He told her, had he not been in a prison cell out of state when he was charged in the Florida cases, his claims of innocence may have had more credibility.
0: For, for the murder of Stephanie Collins and Holly, Holley and Terry Lee Matthews, and they're about to execute me for Terry Lynn Matthews' murder, they execute someone who absolutely did not commit that murder. So you're Absolutely innocent of the murder. I had nothing to do with it.
1: Boland denies ever meeting the victims, even though hair and fiber samples and tire tracks linked to him were among the pieces of evidence collected. Not to mention the witness list that included his ex-wife and half-brother.
0: I didn't know him. I'd never seen him, never met him. I, hadn't, I, I, it, I, I met him through photographs the crime scene photos, the newspaper articles.
1: Boland continued saying things that likely would have enraged the victim's families had they watched his interview with Gomez. Based on the way they refused to say his name, let alone talk about him, they probably didn't watch.
0: Dying down there is not as bad as dying in a car wreck or upside down in a ditch or in a house fire or or like the victims died, or, I mean, there's many worse ways to go. And at least I had the opportunity to say goodbye to my people.
1: The entire case had a lasting impact on those who covered it, even just small portions of it. There were those who reported on the deaths, the years long investigation, the arrests, the trials, the appeals, the crazy marriage, and the execution. Davis covered one of the trials, and it was during that time that she got to know Terry's mother, Kathleen Reeves. She is known by those close to her as Kat. Davis accompanied Kat to Terry's gravesite after that final trial. It was as emotional a story as any that Davis had written. Here was how she wrote the top of her story that was published more than 16 years ago. Fifteen years of the sun's rays burning through the oaks at Florida Mills Memorial Garden have faded the photograph on the headstone marking Terry Lynn Matthews' grave. The outline of her hair is evident, but the details of her face are all but gone. Kay Reeves knows her daughter was smiling when the photo was taken. Kay is quoted in the story saying, I called Terry my rainbow girl or sunshine girl, either one, because she always had a smile on her face. That day in that Spring Hill Cemetery is one that Davis won't forget.
3: It's incredibly um, powerful and emotional to, one, be let in to see that very private moment and to stand there and and listen to her mom talk so lovingly about her daughter as if she was there the day before and to be just overwhelmed by emotion. And, you know, it was hard to maintain your composure as a journalist. Um, you know, you're taught to be tough on the streets and, and um, you know, not get caught up in the emotion, but I'm sure you yourself know that sometimes that's not always possible. And in fact, I remember the photographer who was with me, he actually couldn't. He had to step away because he was just so so swept up by the love that Kathy or Kathleen or Kay had for her daughter that it was just too much looking over her her grave, and that the weather had been so cruel to take away her face that he just had to step away for a moment, and that was really the first time I had ever seen um him in particular but really any of us because you know it's not that we don't have hearts it's just that we try we learn to maintain our composure because we do encounter so much sadness and tragedy um in our daily lives with what we do so it was something it was definitely not a typical day on the job as a reporter
1: covering the bolan story affected gomez too She was face to face with a dead man walking. And that's not something you can just walk away from and forget about.
2: It was tough. I cried afterward because it is hard for me to sit down from someone, you know, sit across from someone and know that hours later they will no longer be here. They're gonna be executed. And that's it. This is the last time they'll have a face-to-face, really, to express their story. And I think it was, it just hit me in the core. And I I realized the profound effect that it was having on me. Because I just couldn't stop thinking about how that was it. That was the last time he was going to speak publicly about everything.
1: Bolin, as expected, relished his last chance to speak about it publicly.
0: I've had a lot of support. A lot of people love me and cared about me. A lot of support outside. That's made it a little easier. But still, it's very difficult to spend 28 years in a room like this.
2: A lot of thinking?
0: You have to be able to look in the mirror and like yourself.
2: Do you like yourself?
0: Yeah. I'm comfortable with myself. There's a lot of things in my younger, in my past, um, you know, I wish I could change, but I'm at peace with myself. The state's about to kill me and they think they're getting justice. And I'm like, well, they're not getting justice. They're just gonna kill somebody else.
1: His execution was scheduled for 6 p.m., but the U.S. Supreme Court poured over documents for close to four hours, giving the case a last thorough review. But that final appeal was denied. Before the deadly chemicals were injected into Bolin, he was asked whether he had any last words. He quietly answered, No, sir. About 12 minutes later, his labored breathing stopped. The three-decade wait for justice was finally over. Bolin was 53 years old. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when I discuss the devastating story of a double homicide case that shocked the Tampa community seven years ago. Army wife Julie Scheneker fatally shot her 16-year-old daughter and 13-year-old son with a 38 caliber revolver. Gloria Gomez will again be among my special guests for that episode. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.